All right, our uh, passage for this morning uh, will be in Revelation 3. Uh, we will be reading verses 1 through 6. All uh, right, and I'll give you a moment to get there. Right, allow me to read the word of the Lord this morning for you. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still, uh, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Good morning. We are continuing our study in the book of Revelation today where we're watching how Jesus, in all of his risen power and glory, personally cares for his church. And today he's talking to a segment of his church who are in real trouble, but they don't know that they are. Verse 1, people who have the reputation of being alive, but who are dead. They look good. Everyone says so. That's their reputation. When people see what they're doing, when they see the lives that they're living, they say, wow, that's real spiritual life and health there, real life, real vitality. That's what spirituality should look like. It's not just Christians who think that. If you read the letter carefully, you realize that there is no tension between them and their society like we've seen with the other churches. They're not dealing with any kind of external coercion, any kind of intimidation, no social rejection, no persecution. Neither the Jews nor the Gentiles are upset with them. In fact, just the opposite, they have a great reputation. They have an appearance of spiritual life that everyone is impressed with. Everyone except Jesus. From his perspective, their reputation is all show. That verse 2, what little spirituality, what little true spirituality that remains among them is about to die out, it's virtually non-existent. That continuing verse 2, their works are not complete in the sight of God. If you delve into the Greek there, it doesn't mean that some of what they're doing, some of their works are not complete, but that none of them are complete that nothing that they're doing has any robust spiritual integrity to it. And yet they have a great reputation. They look like they're alive when they're not. Sure, verse 4, a few of them, different metaphor here, a few have not soiled their garments. A few of them are wrapped in holiness, wrapped in goodness. But by saying that a few have not soiled their garments, the implication is what? Most of them have. Most of them are unwashed. That their works, the way that they live, the works that are so impressive to everyone else are unclean in God's eyes. 
that they are unclean in his eyes, that spiritually, as a church, they're dead. The church is on life support. It's full of people who are dirty and unwashed. And this is so overarching, so descriptive of all that they are, that Jesus has nothing good to say about them to start with which in itself is startling because regardless of all the challenges that we've seen the first four churches face, Jesus always starts with something positive. So to the Ephesian church, he says, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name. That's positive. To Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. That's really positive. Pergamum, you did not renounce faith in me even when my servant Antipas was killed. Positive again. Thyatira, you're growing in love and faith and service and patient endurance. Positive. Sardis, people think you're alive, but you're not. You're dead. That's how the risen Lord starts. Not positive. They're really not doing well. And this is so overwhelmingly true of them as a whole that Jesus does not point to any one thing that then needs to change. He doesn't say, like he says to the other churches, I have this against you, this one area over here. I can summarize it this way. Here, work on this. He doesn't say that. Instead, what needs to happen, he says, is a wholesale renovation. Something that goes to the core, the foundation of how they're living out the faith. You look at that and you think, how is that possible? How can you have something that looks so good from the outside, so vibrant, so good that everyone agrees you are so spiritual? How can you have that be true and yet have them be dead? Okay, what would that look like in the modern world? Well, it would be like looking at a church where the services are full on Sunday morning, where the children and youth programs are bursting, a church that's reaching college students or caring for people who struggle, who don't have access to all of the resources that everyone else does. A church that's maintaining good social media presence, running multiple small groups. It's a church doing all of that incredibly active with people saying, hey, this is great. It's a good church. But God looks at it and says there is nothing there. No spiritual vitality. Lots of activity that everyone likes, but no real substance to any of it. Now that's shocking. It's not what would anyone would expect. And that's why this was absolutely vital for the church to hear 2,000 years ago. It's absolutely vital for us to hear today. We need to hear that as renewal so that we don't fall into these same kind of things. We want to be able to see ourselves and our ministries, we want other people to see them and see that this is something real, that it's connected to real spirituality, that there's not just a reputation of being alive, but that there's real life here. So to make sure that that is what's true of us, we're going to ask three questions this morning. First, why is Sardis spiritually dead? Second, what is Christ's solution for this kind of deadness? And then third, what hope do spiritually dead people have? Why are they spiritually dead? What's the solution? And what hope do they have that that solution will actually work for them? First, why are they dead? There's a sense in which, as you read this letter, that you start to feel a little unsettled without necessarily knowing why. You start reading through, and Jesus says, you're dead, you're asleep, you're on life support, your works are incomplete, your garments are soiled. You read this, and you're thinking, I'm thinking, 
okay, I get that this is bad, but what are we talking about here? What are they doing that's so bad? I'm getting a lot of metaphors, but I don't know what to do with the metaphors. There's nothing here that I can do anything with. Then you come down to verse 5. Jesus promises that the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. It's at that moment a little bell should go off in the back of your head because that phrase takes you back, blot his name out of the book of life. That phrase takes you back like so much of Revelation into the Old Testament. It's back to the first time that you hear of the book of life and people's names being blotted out of it. Let me give you the background. It was the time when God had brought Israel out of Egypt. He brought them to meet with him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and it was there that he gave them his laws, the Ten Commandments. Those are the ways that reflect how he himself actually lives. And then he called Moses to come up Mount Sinai to meet with him so that he could give Moses a greater understanding of how those Ten Commandments actually get lived out. Now Moses was gone far longer than the Israelites were comfortable with. They start to get antsy down there at the bottom of the mountain. And they started wondering if Moses was coming back. Started thinking that they'd been abandoned. If they'd been abandoned by Moses, probably also been abandoned by God. And they reasoned out that what they needed was someone else. They needed something else to guide them. And so in Exodus chapter 32, they say to Aaron the priest, Come, make gods for us who will go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. What is it that they want? They want gods who will go before them, gods who will lead them, gods who will guide them, gods who will instruct them, tell them how to live, gods who will take care of them. In short, they want some way to navigate life. Moses is not around. God hasn't said anything for a while. And so they look around for a substitute. Now, God had already given them a complete way of navigating life in what he'd said to them. And you said to me, yeah, Ten Commandments, you just said that. It was actually more than that. Because that's not all that God said to the Israelites. There's a really little important phrase that God says before he gets to the Ten Commandments. It's, it's almost like an introduction to them. It provides a framework within which, then, the commandments sit. God does not start with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Instead, he starts talking in chapter 19 by saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. This is the framework for everything else that he says. And so he starts by saying, here's who I am. I am your God. I'm personal. Here's what I'm like. I'm a rescuer. I'm your rescuer. Here's what you were. You were slaves in Egypt. You were held by a power that was greater than your own, a power that on your own you could not escape from. And here's what I did. I rescued you. Not because you did anything to earn it or deserve it, but freely by my own choice because I wanted to out of love for you. I wanted you. I did that so that you and I would now have a special relationship. A relationship that we could not have had if you were still enslaved. Now, given all of that, who I am, who you were, who you are now, what I did for you, now here's how we can live together. You shall have no other gods before me, etc. 
In other words, those commands are set within a framework that is what? Shorthand. It's grace-based. It's grace-driven. They're set within a totally undeserved relationship with him. A relationship that you could not have unless he took that first step to move toward you. And so his commands fit into that larger scheme. And it's that whole package that the Israelites reject at the base of Mount Sinai. They basically say, no, that's not what we want. Not if it means sitting here in the wilderness, unsure of where life is going. We want something more certain, even if it means turning our backs on this God who relates to us out of his own sacrificial, self-forgetting love. We want something else because we don't trust him. Sure, he rescued us to what? To abandon us, to leave us to ourselves. He must really not love us. That's who we think he is. And so they tell Aaron, make other gods for us. Other gods with a different kind of foundation for living. And Moses, when he finds this out, has a sense of how dangerous this moment is of how dangerous it is to spurn God's love, to jilt him because he doesn't rise to their level of expectations, to reject him because he's not what they want. And so Moses goes to God and he pleads with God to forgive them. He says, chapter 32, verse 32, now if you would only forgive their sin. But if not... Please blot me out of your book that you have written. Please blot me out. Don't blot them out. Blot me out. Moses intercedes for them. God responds to Moses, and he says, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go with you. Essentially, God says, Moses, you can't substitute for them but I'll forgive them anyway. And my angel shall go before you. My messenger, my presence will go with you. I will walk with you. Israelites put themselves in horrible danger by looking for some other kind of gods. They rejected a grace-based way of living with God and with each other, which then means that they risked being blotted out of God's book of life, out of the citizenship role of heaven. Why is that? Because when you eliminate grace, when you take away grace as the foundation and grace as the motivation, when you remove grace as the means by which you live, then you're left with what? Take that first piece away. All you're left with is a list of commandments, a list of impersonal rules and principles, things that you are supposed to do. Why? Be a good person. If that's what you have, You might try to live them out. If you can do that, you might even seem pretty good. You might have the appearance of genuine spirituality. But you won't have the substance. You won't be motivated by grace. You won't be motivated by wanting to live well with a gracious God, and you won't rely on his power to then live out his commands. In other words, you'll end up doing things that look good, but that won't be. 
that won't be good from God's perspective because you will have taken what he said and you will have dropped it into a foundation that is different than the one that God is working from. And when you do that, these wonderful, life-giving words no longer are. They're not wonderful and they're not life-giving. I don't know, maybe you've experienced this. You ever been going through, ever been going through something hard? You've been suffering or maybe you've fallen into sin and when you told someone else, they did what? They, they threw just a ton of Bible verses at you. They told you what you should do and how you should feel, but they didn't tie any of that to who Jesus is and to what he's done for you. You ever have that happen to you? What does that feel like? Does that feel life-giving or life-stealing? Crushing. It's more crushing, right? Why is that? These are God's words. They're supposed to give life, but they're no longer embedded in the story of a gracious God. They're embedded in a different story. They're not embedded in one that moves where a God moves toward you to love you out of where you are so that you take on his nature and character and then love others. And so, yes, you are hearing technically the words of God, but you're not hearing the gospel. You understand those are two different things at times, right? You're not hearing a gracious God who wants to live with you and love you so that you now adopt a better life. What you're hearing is, this is what's right, here's what you need to do, now just do it and snap out of it. What is that? It's a rejection of grace. It's a rejection of a relationship with the living God. That's what the Israelites did. It's why they were in such a dangerous place. Because if you don't want grace, all you're left with is what? What you do, what you've earned. It's never enough to build a relationship with God, never enough to live with his people. Moses gets this. He understands the danger, and so he pleads with God, please forgive. And if you won't, then blot me out of your book, not them. That's the tie-in to Sardis. That Old Testament narrative helps you understand what's going on in this church. Verse 5, Jesus promises in Revelation, Jesus promises those who have listened to him, who have repented of the way that Christians are living in their city, that he will never blot their names out from the book of life. That's the hint that tells you that there's something about how the church in Sardis is living that is similar to what the Israelites did at Sinai. That Sardis here is not operating from within a grace-based framework. That's why Jesus urges them, verse 3, to remember then what you received and heard. Go back to how you first connected with God. Remember, he says, you heard that Jesus, on his own initiative, went to the cross to die for your sins. He did that to free you from a slavery that you could never free yourself from. That's what you heard. That's what you received. That's what you accepted. And so you embraced God. Why? Because he loves you. So being loved by him now is the foundation. It's the framework from within which you live your life. It's the framework from within which you move toward others with self-forgetting, sacrificial love based on what they need. Why? <laughs> because you have all that you need. You are already loved by this amazing God. 
That's the framework that lets your works, what you do, be done in a way that God says yes. That is both how and why I would do what you're doing. That's what I have loved you and empowered you into doing. But apparently that's not what motivates Sardis at this point in time. Instead, they've discarded that foundation, that framework, and they're working out of a different one so that their works are incomplete. Their works are of no value as they stand now. And for their works to be complete, they have to go back to the beginning, to what they had received and heard, if they're going to have any real spiritual life. If they're going to have more than just the appearance, the reputation of a spiritual life. Let me try to tease this out with an example. I was talking with a young couple, relatively recently, boyfriend and girlfriend. They have a pattern that's pretty normal. She can get anxious when she thinks about the future, about things that might happen. And when she gets anxious, he wants to help. And so he told me, I want her to feel better when she's anxious. And so I try to help, and we talk about the things she's worried about, and I try to help her see that what she's worried about is really not going to happen. Because when she feels better, then I feel good. Make sure you heard that last part. When she feels better, then I feel good. What did he just tell you? He just said, here's my framework. Here's the foundation in which my works sit. It's not true of his life all the time, but in this instance, this is true. It is so that I feel good, so that I'm a good boyfriend. Now, what are his works here? What is he doing? He cares about his girlfriend when she's anxious. It matters to him that she's anxious. He wants to help her. And if all you did was stop there, that has the appearance, the reputation of what? Of being alive. It looks good. But look more closely. Look underneath at why he moves toward her when she's anxious. And ultimately, it's not about her. It's about him. Because when he's able to do that successfully, he feels good. Which is what? It is not a grace-based approach to living. He is not reaching out to her because Christ is filling him to overflowing with love so that he's willing to risk stepping into her world to help her. Instead, he's reaching out because in the end, it does something for him. The works that look so alive are in reality dead. There's no life in what he's doing. There's no real spiritual vitality. In this moment, he is not investing in the relationship to love her as much as he's looking to get something out of the relationship for himself. The thing that really gives it away is when he can't help her feel good, when she doesn't feel better, then he gets depressed. And he told me, I just stopped trying. He gives up. Why? Because he's not getting from her what he wants. He no longer has the reputation of being the good boyfriend. And so he shuts down. Now think here for a moment about Jesus. Read the Gospels and you can't help but be struck by how many people did not listen to him. They did not allow Jesus' words to shape them 
Obviously, the Pharisees, they argued with him. There are crowds, like in John 6, who walked away because what he was saying was just too hard. His own disciples didn't believe. They didn't go to the tomb to see if Jesus really rose from the dead like he said he would. Over and over, people don't listen to Jesus. They don't let his words change them. And yet we never get the sense that Jesus shut down, that he was depressed. Somehow his reason for reaching out to others was not tied to how they responded to him, which tells you that he's not looking for something from them as much as he came to give something to them. And so he didn't curl up when people rejected what he offered. He was operating from this kind of dynamic, this kind of grace-based dynamic. He had this inner source of love that was not fueled by his connections with people. It was fueled by his connection with his father that then allowed him to enter into people's lives regardless of their response to him. If this kind of dynamic is not the motivation at the heart of our church, then every good thing that we do will ultimately not be for the sake of others. It might end up benefiting them in some way, but the real reason, the ugly reason that we'll do it, is because it's going to get us something for us ourselves, something that we want. And so pick a ministry. I don't know, what, serving people who are impoverished. Why would we do that? Because it looks good. Because it makes us feel good. Because we believe it'll build a better society, better community that we will then enjoy living in. Now you could take all of those reasons and we could leverage those to motivate us as a church to do a ton of things, a lot of good works. Works that people will approve of and say, that's what a church should be. That's real spirituality. We could have a great reputation with everyone except Jesus, who would call us out for being dead. Because why? We would be using other people not relating to them in the way that Jesus relates to us. That's point one, why the church in Sardis is spiritually dead. Point two, what's the solution for this kind of deadness? We touched on it a moment ago in verse three. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. When you've moved away from the gospel, the solution is not to go forward as much as it is to go back. To go back to what you received and heard. We talked about that earlier. You have to remember. But you have to do more than mentally recall abstract information about an event that happened 2,000 years ago. You have to do more than treat Jesus, what Jesus did in his life, his death, and his resurrection as something other than cold, hard facts. You have to remember what you received and heard, and you have to keep it. What's that mean to keep it? This is not something you learn and then file away in the back of your memory. It's something that you remember. You call it to mind, and then you hang on to it. Something that now informs how you go about living. And so what you are remembering now reminds you of what you need to experience from God that will then empower you in your relationships with others. In other words, you have to take this out of the category of trivia. Billy taught me this a couple years ago. If you're new to Renewal, one of our members puts together trivia competitions at times for us 
as a church event. It's fun for us. It gives us opportunity to get to know each other a little bit, opportunity for us to invite our friends. But in telling me about these, Billy told me that with trivia, there's no judgment. It's either something that you know or that you don't know. And so if you do know the answer, you get a point. If you don't know the answer, you don't get a point. Not because you weren't clever or smart enough, but simply because it's just not something you picked up in the course of your life. It's not some odd little bit of random information that you filed away. What Jesus did in his life, his death, and his resurrection is completely different. It's not something that you learn during catechism classes, commit to memory, and then file away. It's something that you actively keep, that you remember, that you then live out of. It's not trivia information, it's what? It's applied knowledge. I was talking with a couple of people this past week at lunch. One of them was talking about how in undergrad he had to memorize the periodic table of the elements. Another guy was surprised, <laughs> why would you ever memorize that? It's because in this first guy's major, you need to be able to use it, to apply it. And so you had to know it. You had to actively remember it. You had to keep it. Not in some remote trivia information center of your brain, but in the front part where you could readily access it. Jesus is saying here that what you received and heard has to be like that. That a grace-based relationship isn't simply how you enter the Christian life, it's how you continue to live the Christian life. And so this boyfriend that we're talking about needs to love his girlfriend out of what? A present active awareness that he is in a relationship with Christ. One that gives him everything that he needs to have a relationship with his girlfriend. What do I mean by that? He needs to know, to remember, to have an awareness that right now he is loved by God beyond his wildest imagination. That the same love that compelled Jesus to go for the, to the cross for him is the same love that Jesus has for him right this very moment. It's not any less. And he needs to have that awareness so that he then experiences that kind of love right now and then speaks to his girlfriend out of that sense of being loved. Because it's only then that he's going to be freed up to say what she needs to hear regardless of how she responds. He will never be able to do that if his end goal is for her to feel better so that he'll feel good. See, if his motivation is to get good feelings from his interaction with her, he may end up saying things that aren't true. Or he might hold back on saying things that are true because she might not want to hear them. And if he says those things, then she won't feel good, and then he won't either. But if he's already as fully and completely and totally loved to the brim by God, then he's freed up to say what he thinks she needs to hear regardless of how she might respond. See, Christianity is incredibly practical. It's what gives you a chance of escaping your own self-interest in order to give to someone else what is in their best interest. So if this boyfriend is filled to the brim by God, then he can afford to say what his girlfriend needs. And she might respond well. If she responds well, then what? He'll be happy. Why? Because now her life is better not because he's responsible for creating a world that she likes. Or, she might not respond well. 
in which case he won't be happy, but it'll be a godly unhappiness. What do I mean by that? He'll be unhappy for her because of what she could have that she's refusing. He'll be unhappy that she won't let him serve her, but it won't be a depressed, oh, I quit and give up because she's not making me feel good, unhappiness. It'll be an unhappiness that drives him to his knees in prayer for her. An unhappiness that's willing to try again for her sake because that's what she needs. That's the kind of self-forgetting love that he'll have for others as he continues in the present to experience Jesus' self-forgetting love for him. That's the kind of self-forgetting love that you and I need in our individual lives. And it's what has to mark us in our life together as a church. It's what has to drive our ministries. And that's the kind of self-forgetting love that will get us in trouble with the world around us. Sounds a little strange, right? How can radical, other-centered love generate trouble? How can that generate opposition or persecution? Well, you realize it did in Jesus' life. Why? Because that kind of real love for someone else will say what's true. And it's willing to say that people are in danger. That what they're relying on, the framework out of which they operate, will doom them. It will put them in danger of having their names blotted out. That their goodness is, at best, soiled garments. If you live out of being filled up by God, you will get in trouble with other people. You'll say what's true because you'll be more concerned for God's reputation than you are for your own. You will risk upsetting people because you're not going to try to manipulate them into thinking a certain way or trying to get them to agree with you or like you or approve of you because your real concern will be for them. You'll get in trouble with others because being loved by God means that you don't need other people to love you. You'd really like it if they would, You'll be sad if they don't, but you won't be destroyed. Knowing that you're loved by him gives you courage right now. It makes you realize, I don't need a good reputation with all of you as much as I need a good reputation with Christ. It's been really helpful to me over the last several weeks. Speaking personally, I hate conflict. <laughs> Always have. This is one of my lifelong battles. I've seen tremendous progress and growth here. I'm nowhere close to handling conflict the way that Jesus does. I really would just like everything to be smooth and easy between people, which means when I get a hint that it might not be, I tend to pull away. I tend to pull my punches. I do that even when it won't be good for the other person. I do that when there is something that they really need to hear. Or I pull back because I'm not sure how things are going to go. Whether or not I'll be able to say things in a way that sound reasonable, that sound respectable, so that I'll be respectable, so that my reputation will be intact. And ever since I was a child, I have this overdeveloped radar that starts to feel uneasy when things get a little tense. I start to feel this tightening in my chest. And what I do with that tightening is really important because it either leads to these incomplete dead works or... It leads to real live spirituality. See, I can do a couple things with that tightness. 
that lead to incomplete dead works. I can choose to just ignore it. Yeah, it builds up, but I'm going to pretend it's not there and just sort of soldier on. Or I can sense it and figure out, okay, if I say this or do that or I don't say that and I do this, everything will be fine. I won't look foolish. I'll still be respected. Neither of those two options, however, serve other people. And so these past couple of weeks have been paying a little extra attention to those times when I start to feel a little tight inside. And I've been taking that physical feeling as a signal to pray, signal to remember, to go back to Jesus and ask him to forgive me for caring more about my reputation in someone else's eyes than in upholding his reputation before their eyes, even if they don't like it. I've been asking him to remind me of how much he loves me. I've been asking him to help me realize that that really is enough for me so that I can stand it if somebody else doesn't. I've been thanking him, actually, for these moments, for stepping into my world, helping me see the root issue that's producing my anxiety, for helping me see what it really is. And I've been asking him to help me think about what is it that I need to say, what do I need to do for the sake of his reputation, not for mine might get me in trouble with other people, but I would rather be in trouble with people than be in trouble with God. I would rather be in trouble with people than be in danger of rejecting the grace that God offers me, the grace of a present connection with him that will make up for whatever someone else doesn't offer. That's point two, the solution for deadness. Remember and keep what you have already received. But point three, can you actually do that? if you've already drifted away spiritually? Is there hope for people whose works are incomplete? And the glory of this passage is that it says, yes, yes, there is. And to see that hope, don't just listen to what Jesus says. Look at the fact that he's actually saying it. Look at the fact that he comes and he talks to this church in Sardis. Realize he has other options, right? He could ignore them. He could crush them. He doesn't do that. He comes and he engages them. Look at how he treats this clueless, flashy group of people who think that they're all that when they're not, who have no idea how much danger they're in. Look at what he does, and you realize, oh my goodness, he loves them. Still, that what they received before, that he loved them enough to die for them, is still true. He cares about them when? Right now. And so he moves toward them. He is spiritually alive, even if they're not. And so he puts himself out there for their sake one more time. Risks being rejected one more time. Because this is the heart of God. To notice those who are in danger and to step into their worlds for their sake. And so what does he do? Verse 1, he warns them. He tells them, here's what I see wrong. Verses 2 and 3, here's what you need to do about it. All is not lost. There's actually something that God thinks you can do. Why is that? Because verse 4, he doesn't want to come like a thief. doesn't want to surprise them. He wants something better for them. And so he starts giving them incentives. He holds out promises that are really worth having. He tells them, verse 5, that if they'll repent, if they will listen, if they'll walk with him, then he will confess their name before the Father and before the angels. Think about that for just a moment. They are working so hard to have a good reputation 
where? Here, among the citizens of Sardis. Well, how long is that reputation going to last? 50 years? 100 years? Renewal. <laughs> no one's going to remember Renewal Mainline 100 years from now. And if they do, they're not going to remember you and they're not going to remember me. Jesus is offering to proclaim these people's names. He's offering to proclaim your name and my name before the eternal God and the holy angels. He's offering to give us a name where it counts, a name that will count forever instead of a reputation that's going to fade and pass away. And he offers to make this all possible. He comes, verse 1, with the power of heaven. <laughs> he has the Spirit of God and he holds power over the entire angelic host. And he offers, verse 4, to let you walk with him. Listen. The essence of a church's life is not its programs. Its life is not found in what it does. Its life is not in what others think of it, in its reputation. Its essence, its life, is that we are people who are now connected to God himself. That we have a life that can only come in active fellowship with the living God, which is exactly what Jesus offers. He offers it to Sardis, and now he offers it to you and me. He loves his church so much that he is 100% invested in her, in her well-being, and so he comes to her, he talks to her, he warns her, promises to give her the supernatural help that she needs, and he will do the same for you, especially if you've been trying to live out of a different framework than the one that he wants to relate to you with. He may have some strong things to say to you, but they come from a heart of love that wants you and wants you back. If you need any more convincing, then remember. Remember how he started this relationship with you. That he started it by losing his reputation, losing his good name. Moses offered to lose his name, to have his name blotted out so that the Israelites might not be. That's a kind of love that I know that I don't have. I do love people. I've never offered to trade a place in heaven for hell, for anyone. Moses offered. God said he couldn't because whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. And yet God did forgive the Israelites. How do you know? Because he went with them. His presence went with them. He walked with them, even though they had sinned against him. So now, you would expect that he would walk with Jesus. Jesus never sinned against him. Jesus never did any single thing that God was unhappy with. He did every single thing that God wanted him to do. And so you would expect that God would walk with him throughout his entire life with this one person that he never had to forgive. And yet God doesn't. He forsakes Jesus on the cross. In Jesus' hour of greatest need, when he faced God's full wrath, he did so alone. Because it was there that he took on our sin. He lost his good name before the Father. Because he took on your name and my name and then died apart from God's presence. Because he didn't just have our reputations, he carried with him our incomplete works. All of the things that we have done 
for some other reason than self-forgetting love. He took our bad reputations from us and made them his own, and he did more. He turned around and gave us his good reputation. The reputation that now lets us stand before God in heaven and see him smile at us. To know that there is no animosity between him and us, because it's all gone. That's how Jesus starts a relationship with you and me. He died apart from God, experienced what it would be like to be blotted out so that we would never really know fully what that means. That's how he starts relating to us. That's how he still feels. His love has not grown colder, not even when ours does. Remember that. That's at the heart of how God treats you right now taking from you a reputation that he did not deserve to give you one that you could never earn. Let that grip you. Keep it and trust him. Ask him to work it into your heart by the power of his spirit so that being loved by him now is the way that you start to love others. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you did not give us abstract, cold logic, principles, rules, but Lord, that you embedded them in a relationship that you took 100% responsibility for. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you with open hearts now, regardless of what we've done this morning, last week, last several years. Lord, that we can come to you knowing that we can repent, that you will receive us. Lord, take the knowledge of who you are, the knowledge of your heart, and work that deep into our own now by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.